breaking news, amateur podcast hosts have been spotted all across the country. Witnesses say they don't know what they're doing, but they're doing it anyway. Let me take you on a journey. What exactly is a podcast? David, you're a sea cucumber. What is this? Oh, yeah. Did you guys see that Travis Kels and Taylor Swift are dating? I don't know who that is. I mean, I know, obviously, so, I know who Taylor Swift is. <laughs> it's a tight end for the, for the Chiefs NFL team. Oh, uh, okay. There was a lot of rumors going around. I actually called it like a month ago. Um, and I actually am quite embarrassed of how I called it. Um, Travis Kelsey has a podcast. And he was talking on the podcast because he was injured. And he was like, oh, yeah, I've been, you know, people have been baking for me. And he'd also had an interview a few weeks prior to that where he talked about how he had a huge crush on Taylor Swift and how he was going to ask her out. And then all of a sudden, Taylor Swift's not on tour anymore and no one knows where she's at. And all of a sudden, someone's baking for Travis and Taylor Swift is very much known for her baking. And I was like, ah, I bet they're dating secretly. And I hate myself for knowing the fact that Taylor Swift is known for her yeah, baking. Like, that's say, not my high point. Yeah, this is not, my, not something I was my, aware of. Fanboy levels. My, not my high point in my life. Um, I'm not a huge Taylor Swift fan. I don't know a whole whole lot about her, but I do know that. Um, See, I think and you've just I was like, proven ah, I bet they're that dating. you're lying, and you do know a whole lot about her. <laughs> I, and, and then uh, I didn't even know she wasn't on tour anymore. Yeah, same thing. Same. <laughs> everything wait, she, wait, hold I on. didn't know did other she, than that they were dating because I saw it on football yesterday. <laughs> did she end her tour because they're dating and they're spending time together, or was her tour over? I think she was taking a break from her tour before she goes international. Oh, okay, interesting. See, you know too much about this. Yeah, to you know not a, lot. Be a Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> Williams like actually her tour ended on this date, blah blah blah. <laughs> but her next and her one international starts, tour blah, blah, starts. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I know because her farewell song at the last tour was <laughs> <laughs> was See You in Vegas. Anyway, but yeah, so that she was at the Chiefs game yesterday sitting with Travis Kelsey's mother in the booth and um basically all of TikTok and every sports page ever has been talking about that. It's all I've seen now. on Twitter. Really? All day. Yeah. Everything is well, like the same three little video clips of them in the in the yeah. box at Arrowhead Stadium. <clears throat> yep. And like the video of them driving away together. And like it's actually really annoying because I follow a lot of sports pages, especially during like this time of year when college football and NFL is back. And now all the comments are just a bunch of white girls talking about Taylor Swift. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm you know, good for him. Great for him. Actually. Worlds collide. But it's kind of annoying when I'm looking to see commentary on football and all I can see are a bunch of white girls and they're commenting, I shipped this so hard. This is so tailor coded. And I'm like, what the heck does that even mean? Like, oh, come on now. You know, what is, don't, what is don't coded like mean? You don't know. No, I don't know what the phrase this is so coded means. Like, what does that mean? Oh, I have no idea. What is the, I don't know. I was just gaslighting you. I, I have no idea. I've never heard that before. <laughs> is that the new thing? Is that like, Instead of goaded, it's coded. Or coded, no, I don't think coded so. Coded as in like C-O-D-E-D? It's C-O-D-E-D. Yeah, that's what they're saying. Like that's like in your genetic code. Is that what that means? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I can follow that. So I guess I guess maybe, yeah, but it's just weird. I'm like, all right, let's get back to talking about how Alabama is trash and like, you know, all the good stuff you want to see in the comments. 
people trash talking each other but it's just a bunch of white girls talking about how much they love taylor swift and travis kelsey together i'm like that's cool and all but let's get back to what really matters here yeah i i did enjoy the memes that i've been seeing about how uh chiefs fans are about to be really upset for the rest of the season when they can't get tickets to the game because they're bought out by swifties (laughs) oh i didn't even think about that did you see this is not at all man we're so off topic right now did you see that taylor swift went to a wedding for her like producer or manager or something and they had to shut down the reception because there were so many people outside of the venue no are you serious it wasn't even an event for her she was just attending to be there for her manager at their wedding wow and there were crowds of people outside of the restaurant and they had to evacuate i mean she is legitimately one of the most popular people in america maybe the world right now so i i get it but that's still stupid yeah it's crazy anyway swifties are crazy man Taylor Swift fans are out of control. I also didn't so know let's they get were called the Swifties until I saw those <laughs> uh, those memes. Sorry. Yeah, that might have started as a joke, but I think they've like adopted that, haven't they? I have no idea. <laughs> William would which, know. What? what? <laughs> Is Swifty like an official term? Uh, yeah, I think like so. That's what yeah. they call themselves. Like, do you call yeah. yourself a Swifty? No. <laughs> I really thought you were going to get him. <laughs> <laughs> I did too. <laughs> He was like, just had the perfect amount of I'm only partly paying attention face that I thought you <laughs> yeah. were just going to get. A, oh, yeah. No, I was. I just <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I I don't know. I yes. Anyway. Yeah. You're tailor coded. <laughs> yep, for sure. Yeah. Anyway, so we're talking about a completely different topic tonight. It has nothing to do with Taylor Swift, probably. Um, I was going to make another bad joke. I mean, she would have been like stop five or something when all this started so yeah i hope it has nothing to do with her (laughs) yes so we're actually talking about the netflix miniseries called painkiller came out this year and it is about the opioid crisis uh, injuries around (laughs) football (laughs) yeah it's about taylor swift and her dating (laughs) the chiefs no it's about the sackler family people that popularized and pushed opioids, specifically OxyContin, uh, to the masses in America. And we watched the miniseries this past few days or week or so, and we're going to talk about it tonight. As soon as we get off the topic of Taylor Swift. I I would say (laughs) I take a little bit of issue with the way you characterized what they did, that they popularized (laughs) <laughs> that's yeah uh, opioids that's, that 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 has a very positive spin on what happened <laughs> it was not meant to be a positive spin <laughs> i apologize but i can see where you got that <laughs> there is a very similar um there's a very similar series that was on hulu i think that came out before that david was talking about when we were talking about doing this yeah, it's called, called dope. dope sick uh, yeah 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 i have and not did, seen that one but David, you saw that, right? I, I have seen bits and pieces of it. My wife watched all of it a couple of years ago when okay. it came out. I think it came out in 2021. Yep. From the little bit that you saw, did you like Dope Sick a little bit better? Was it like, what were the differences that you saw? I didn't see enough to really be able to make that, that kind of judgment. I, I know the parts that I saw of Dope Sick were a lot more focused from the perspective of uh, the doctor or a, a doctor character who was 
prescribing uh, Oxycontin and him grappling with that. That character was played by Michael Keaton. Uh, and then there was, so there were three basic main characters. So it was him. He was the doctor. It was a, uh, the pharmaceutical rep working for Purdue Pharma that was played by, uh, oh, shoot. Peter Sarsgaard's name. No. Uh, no. Darn it. The, the guy who was in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Will, Will Poulter. Poulter. Yes. Uh, and then Caitlin Deaver played a patient who got addicted to it. And all three of them, the bits and pieces I saw were very good. Uh, after watching this one, I really want to go back and watch the Hulu stuff now. See see yeah. what the differences are. But I think I think it was just a different approach to telling the story. I mean, because it's basically the same story. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if the characters in in Dopesick are direct uh, parallels to real people, but in this one, it was not. Uh, which I actually appreciated. I think that they made these uh, composite characters up for Painkiller. That are the, our our main characters all represent many people. None of them are parallels of like a specific person in real life and that that is not a choice that i feel like i see in a lot of these dramatized true stories they're usually a person or a couple of persons that are being played by actors but they were real and then you get a lot of confusing mix-ups between what actually happened and what was dramatized and this way was much cleaner but still did a very good job of telling the story and making all of the pain and suffering feel real. You mean yeah. the actual patients uh, that, that were taking the drugs? Cause the Sacklers obviously were yes. the real yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. So in, in uh painkiller, I think the only real characters in it were the Sacklers, the lawyer, not, not the main character lawyer, her boss. I can't think of his name now. Uh, and then oh, there was someone else, and I can't remember. Oh, uh, Dr. Curtis Wright at the FDA. I think that was a real person as well. So this show was directed by Peter Berg. And if you have not heard of him before, he is the uh, director of Hancock, Lone Survivor, Battleship, Mile 22, a lot of different war movies, and then like Hancock. So uh, I love that movie. I love Hancock. It was pretty it's funny. It's a great movie. Yeah, I liked it. It's yeah. uh, Will Smith. I pretty much like anything Will Smith, though. But then also Lone Survivor was really good. I believe that one's the one with Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, Mark yes. Wahlberg is in that one. And that's a that's a pretty cool story. So he he's done a lot of pretty prominent stuff, a lot of war movies. He did Friday Night Lights and a few other things. But he's, you know, I, I've liked a lot of the stuff that he's done. But he was on Joe Rogan's podcast a few weeks ago. And that was pretty interesting because he he talked about the producing of it and the directing of it and why they made a lot of the choices that they made. And we talked about, uh, David, you had said that you liked that it wasn't following like real people. It was just kind of dramatizations of it. And he, he made a huge point in the podcast where he talked about that. He was like, yeah, we wanted to, you know, show the types of people that this was affecting and not go over specific stories. He said, because when we go over specific stories, we have to make sure we get more stuff, right? We have to make sure it's accurate. Or we're going to get scrutinized. And if we get scrutinized, it's going to take away from the message that we're trying to give. So we chose not to go over real people's stories. The people didn't start nitpicking it and tearing it apart and saying, oh, well, this wasn't true. This wasn't true. This wasn't true. And he's like, we also didn't want to get sued. But he did say 
that is the reason that they put the you know the intros in yeah. where it's the parents saying I was just about hey, to talk about that this is dramatized but this isn't you know and it, it was them giving their own accounts and he said that was one of the most powerful things that I think we did with this whole like show was we put real people in there and it's not interviews it's not you know dramatizations of their stories it's real parents having real raw emotions about their children or their loved ones that have died from an op- the op- op- opioid epidemic and i really loved that i thought it was a really nice touch because you know normally they have like the viewer discretion is advised like these are dramatized it's like just the text box but having actual victims of this going forward and saying you know this is dramatized but you know what isn't dramatized the fact that my son or my daughter died from this and you know i, I thought that was a really cool touch that they put in there yeah that was going to be the next thing i brought up that was actually so as i was watching the show i was making notes for myself and that was the very first thing i wrote down at the first episode was that i loved the way they did that because it served both functions that those little blurbs at the beginning try to serve and both functions were much more effective the the first being telling everyone that yes this is a dramatization this is not this isn't a documentary that we paid actors to play the roles of the documentary. This is fake based around real events. But the second part being that it did really hit home the emotional truth and pain surrounding these events. And it, it was very well done. I was pleasantly surprised when I got to the second episode and it happened again because I initially thought it was just going to be like to start the series. Yeah. But when yeah. it happened every episode, I thought that was also a fantastic choice. I I was going to comment on that because a lot of the time when things like this are made, they'll sometimes put that maybe at one episode, like the first episode, but also sometimes they'll just put it at the ends of the series where they have like credits rolling, but then you have like real stories that kind of play with the credits. Right. But the fact that they had this at every beginning of every episode kind of primes you when you sit down to watch this because yep. maybe like us most of well, probably all of us at least watched a few episodes at a time to get this done so that we could do this podcast but a lot of people aren't going to be binge watching some stuff like this most of the time and so if you come back to a show like this you're like oh man i really like this show i can't wait to watch the next episode that's the very first thing you see is the real people that lost their loved ones and you're like okay, I'm primed. Like, I know what this is about now. And I know that this isn't just for my entertainment. This is like a message yes. that they're trying to send. Yep. I really yeah, like that's, that. That's what I was going to say. It's like, it's it's easy to get caught up in liking a show and not thinking about what they're actually trying to do. But that kind of brings you back down to reality. Like, yes, this is for entertainment, but also like, I need to be thinking about what they're trying to show me here because this is still a problem. Like, the opioid epidemic is still happening. People are still being addicted to it. And while we're going to see later and probably next week when we talk more about it, they did get fined and they did have to pay a lot of money, but it's still, it's still a problem. And I like that they emphasize that and they show you that because this is not a problem of the past either. This is not a documentary that was made about some past, you know, occurrence, this is still happening. And there's still people that are heavily affected by this today. Yeah, Yeah, we didn't mention this yet. But this is going to be a two part series. This 
particular episode, we're going to be talking about the show itself, the dramatization of everything, um, as well as, you know, how we liked the characters, how the director did, how the writers did, et cetera, et cetera. This is the entertainment parts of the story that we're reviewing. How did the creators of this show do? How did the actors do portraying these fake people with that represent real life people? as well as the Sacklers and how the actors did with that, et cetera, et cetera. Next week, we're going to be doing kind of a deeper dive into the real story of real victims and what really happened with the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma. Kind of a, just a little bit more of a deep dive on, on the actual story and how it played out and how it's going still. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to, it's going to be difficult for me throughout this episode to not end up throwing in stuff that should go in next week. And I have to keep, checking myself like no no, remember this is a movie review (laughs) this is not the historical deep dive episode that's next week yeah when we were talking about doing that i i was thinking to myself that's gonna be really hard for all of us yeah because really our our only assignment this time was watch this series and normally Mm -hmm. it's hey let's compare this and let's do some research on what really went down if this was based on true events etc but yeah, we are trying our best to stick to the review of this show. Yeah, and yeah. I'm sure we will mess up as we go through it, but we will be oh, yeah. certain <laughs> to anything we say this week, next week, there will be deeper information about it and what we're what we're researching here. And I think it really is appropriate for us to break it up into two because this is such a dense amount of information and such an important topic and something that took place over the course of like 30 years uh, and we're still dealing with. So I, I think having it broken up is the right call. Just, you know, dear listener, be patient with us. Thank you. Yeah. Well, what did you guys think of uh, Uzo Aduba? She was amazing. Oh, she was, she yeah, was she fantastic. Was my favorites. Yeah, she did. She did really well. She was, so what was she? She was like an FDA like investigator. Is that what she was? Like not, what was her actual job? She worked type? for the U.S. Department. Uh, oh, the word okay. just left me. How do you f- say it? The the phrase of her title. It's not the U.S. Department of. Uh, she was like the part of the prosecutor's U.S. Attorney's Office. The U.S. Attorney's okay. Office. Thank you. That's it. Yeah. Okay. She was an investigator for yeah, the U.S. Attorney's Office. Yeah. Yeah. She is one of. I guess she's one of the first people you actually see when you when you begin the show she's sitting down in a room for some sort of deposition and it seems like this is in the future and very much like oppenheimer actually (laughs) was how this was structured uh we had we had her her name was edie flowers her character's name was edie flowers and she was sitting down in this deposition with presumably some other lawyers from the state or something like that and she was giving testimony for everything that happened to her during her time investigating and trying to litigate the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma. And yeah, she she was so good. She yeah. she like brought the intensity immediately and she kept yes. it through the whole thing. I love that. In, in my opinion, well, the, she was the best part of this series. Yeah. Yeah. She her her performance was very powerful. She you, the visible discomfort she felt and that it, she caused us to feel when talking about the Sackler family as a whole 
when they were asking her to talk about it and to say, hey, you know, like what happened in the past when you guys were trying to prosecute him is her visible, her visual, like disgust and distaste for the entire situation. And even realizing when they told her that they were, they had deposed Richard Sackler and he sat in that chair, like she wanted the chair gone from the room. Like it, so it just shows the, and it was convincing just the level. Yeah. The level of hatred that she had for these people and how evil she thought they truly were really kind of sets the stage for the whole show and understanding that like, this is going to be a show about just how truly terrible this family is enough to make this woman not even want to be in the same chair that someone sat in. And she had a very, I thought that was very hard job because she is one of the main characters of the dramatization, but she also, because of the way the story was told was the narrator of the whole story. Mm -hmm. And anytime a character or an actor has to do both of those, I think it's very difficult to do both well. And she did both phenomenally in my opinion. She's a, she was a really good actor in this and I hadn't seen her in anything that she's been in before. She was in the movie Lightyear, the new Buzz Lightyear movie that came out. Apparently she she was was known for Orange is the New Black, which I never saw. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she was in all 90 or 90 episodes of Orange is the New Black, but I never saw any of that. So I didn't didn't watch that that. either. Um, and that was, that was, those two are really the only two that I, I've heard of, I think she was in like an episode of my little pony at some point, but <laughs> yeah, it looks like she does. It looks like she does voice acting, uh, like Steven universe. She did. Mm. She's like a main character in Steven universe, which I've heard of that show light year. So she does some voice acting stuff, but yeah, I had never seen her in anything else either, but yeah, I, I was very impressed. I'm hoping to see her in a lot more after this. Cause she really showed her chops in this project. Agreed. Yeah. Also in this movie was Matthew Broderick. Who the heck is that? <laughs> See, he's the only, for me at least, actor that I recognized beforehand. Yeah. Uh, really? They, well, uh, okay. Not the only one I recognized, but the only like big-ish name actor. Yeah. I knew Clark Gregg, who actually plays his, not his father, his uncle. His uncle. Yeah. yeah. And he, he did really well as as well. And then Sam Anderson and... Uh, John Rothman, I have seen in things occasionally, but none of those people could I tell you their names before this. Uh, Clark Gregg yeah. could, but that was it. Just Matthew Broderick and Clark Gregg. Taylor, uh, Taylor Kitsch, Kitsch apparently yeah. was a big actor in Friday Night Lights, which again is something I didn't yeah. see. He was, I, I did not recognize him, but when I was preparing for the episode tonight, he was in a an Amazon Prime show with Chris Pratt called The Terminal List that I watched, and he was good mm-hmm. in that. I just did not recognize him. He oh. had long hair in that one. I've heard of that show, but I never watched it. I, I really like Taylor Kitsch. I've actually never seen Friday Night Lights, but K- Taylor Kitsch is the main, one of the main characters in one of my favorite movies, and not a lot of people know about the movie because it's about photographers. It wasn't like hugely popular, but it's called The Bang Bang Club. And if you ever get a chance to watch that, I would highly recommend it, especially if you're into photography. But it's also based on a very true story of these wildlife photographer, wildlife and wartime photographers that went over overseas to like Africa uh, during some of their civil war um, things that were happening. Very, very good movie. But yes, Matthew Broderick, for people who don't know the name, it's Ferris Bueller. 
Ferris yeah. Bueller's Day Off. And Inspector Gadget, which I did not realize. <laughs> right. It's been so long. You Inspector forgot his Gadget. best role. It's been Simba. It's, Come on. Oh, he's that's Simba? right. Yeah, he's, he's a teenage and adult Simba. Oh, interesting. Yeah, very, very Who, famous. Wait, he's also, he's also in the B movie. What is he in the B movie? Probably one of Probably the B's. Probably B, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Thank you. I, I had a comment earlier that I didn't say because it didn't fit into where the conversation went. But you guys know what my favorite Will Smith movie is since he came up and you were saying you like everything. He's what? What? My favorite thing he was ever in was the 94th Academy Awards. That was that was a fantastic (laughs) show. (laughs) Yeah, that was an interesting role that he took. Yeah, Uh, really was really really showed his dramatic range. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrible. Oh, boy. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have derailed us with that. We can it tell you're a millennial dad for making that joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sam Anderson was another one that I recognize immediately, only because I've seen the show Lost uh, at least four times all the way through. He's in that? He plays a major character in Lost. Yeah. Wait, what? Also, why have you Sam watched Anderson. Lost oh. four times through? Oh, he's the, uh, he's the guy that was married to the... Yeah, he's yeah, Rose, it was like a husband and wife. Husband. Yeah, Rose's yeah, husband. Yeah, okay. I can't remember huh. his name at this time, but yes. I didn't even put that together. Wait, Rose's yeah, husband. He, Isn't Rose the main character? Lost. The main female no, character? No. That was Kate. Oh, you're right. Ready for some Lost trivia? Throw anything at me, brother. <laughs> why Why have you watched Lost four times? I don't know. It's, it, I have a thing for Lost, man. It is, it is a great show. Even, I don't care what people say about it. I, I, know, ending? I know people hate the ending. I didn't love the yeah. ending either. You mean, but, but it's still you were a great okay show. With it? No, but that's well, literally the, absolute, the only thing that's not good about it. The absolute chokehold that the show Lost has on like a certain group of people is actually insane to me. Yeah, you can't say that's the only one thing it has wrong with it when the whole show is a mystery building up to the reveal at the end and the reveal at the end is utter <laughs> garbage. That means the whole show is bad. <laughs> All right, we're not a, we're not getting into a debate on Lost right now. I, I will give up the debate if you admit that you're wrong. <laughs> Ooh. Conflict. So most of the other characters <laughs> in the show, Painkiller, which is what we're talking about tonight. I didn't recognize any of the other actors from anything huge. Uh, I saw a few people that I maybe recognized from little smaller roles, but those are the main big names, I think. The ma- the the lady, the sales lady. Her name is West Deshovny. Deshovny. Mm-hmm. Such a punchable face. I did not like her at all. Wow. Terrible thing to say. Wow. Well, it's not I mean, something that an actor it. can control. <laughs> but you know how some people just have like a punchable face. Like she had one and it just, it kind of ruined every scene she was in for me. That's wow. a terrible thing to say about a person. You have very, <laughs> you have very interesting opinions about things like I'm this. Sorry. Sometimes you just I'm say sorry. things and I'm like, wait, did that really just happen? <laughs> <laughs> it did it just happened and i meant it i didn't realize this until again looking this up but she is actually david duchovy's daughter Ooh. the name sounds familiar who is that um he is in a lot of stuff he's from the x-files he's the uh molder in the x-files oh but i oh, mean he's see, in she's a, a nepo baby things. that's just like the one another reason not to like her just another nepo baby out here sorry sure <laughs> i'm sorry are you taking on the role of Julia this evening in her absence? Yes. Yes, I am. So Painkiller is kind of broken up, it seemed to me, 
into like four-ish kind of lines to follow. We had the deposition with Edie Flowers. We got to see kind of behind the scenes with Richard Sackler, played by Matthew Broderick, as well as the broader Sackler family and kind of the behind the scenes plotting that they were doing. We had Taylor Kitsch's story. He played a, a character named Glenn Krieger. And then we had the pharma girl saleswoman story with Shannon Schaefer played by West. <laughs> She's the one who wants to punch in case. You yeah. Get for some reason, William wants to punch a lady. I don't know. It's because of her uh, face. Apparently. Apparently. She also I, sounded weird too. But. <laughs> Keep digging, bud. Keep digging. I'll hop off. So William didn't like that character. It was very clear. <laughs> I did not. No, it wasn't if, the character. You couldn't it was tell. the actress. Right. Well, I didn't yeah. really like the character either, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, I, I like the concept of what they were doing. Her but. recruiter slash mentor in the pharma girl program. L- loved her. Really? I'm kidding. 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 I'm kidding. Uh, anyway. I just, I knew you were going to say that. She was another one that. I had seen before, but I couldn't place. And she was in the first season of Jack Ryan. She played the terrorist's wife who's like running away from stuff and turns on him. But that was the only thing I'd really seen her in. But she has a very memorable face. So I, I was trying to place that forever. So if you watched this and didn't know what oh. she was from, but she looked super familiar, that's what she's from. Yeah. Okay, that's very funny because she's actually Saudi Arabian. I would not have guessed. And she does just not based look Saudi Arabian in this. this. Yeah. Well, that's why when you said that, I looked it up and I was like, why do they have this lady playing a Middle Eastern woman? <laughs> Whitewashing. And then I was and then I yeah, and then I read that she's Saudi Arabian. So, that Makes sense. Hmm. It's almost like race is a construct. (laughs) (laughs) What? Anyway, moving on. Um. (laughs) So the four stories kind of branches that the story tells, I thought was a very interesting way to tell the story. Again, kind of we talked about this in Oppenheimer. It was kind of a diversion from the norm. William, are you taking your temperature right now? I am. I am listening. I just got distracted for a second. Are you, you like ill? Stop. Do you need to go lay down? No. You know that's not how you use that thermometer, right? Yeah, it goes in your butt. No, it's oral. No, it, it's stuff for oral. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what were you saying? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, Oppenheimer um, and the way the story was told. That was <clears throat> what you were talking. About. Yeah, David mentioned how Edie Flowers' character kind of was the narrator of the story. So we had her telling the story to the to people that were deposing her. And we were following along with them just in a visual manner, essentially. But I really liked the way that they, they broke this up. And they could have done it several different ways. They could have just told, you know, the story of one addict or one of the of the Sackler family following Richard specifically. But they, they chose to make a lot of good decisions when it came to showing the diversity of how many people that this drug and this family affected throughout the infancy and the growth of the popularity of this drug. Do we want to like talk about each storyline separately? What we thought about the, the portrayal of, you know, the farmer girls and then the actual addict, yeah. ED slash uh, 
Sackler stuff. Yes. Which one do y'all want to start with? So let's start with the Sackler, the Richard Sackler and family story. They kind of go into that at the beginning with how he was raised and kind of the the legacy. They use the word legacy a lot in this this story. And it all kind of begins with Clark Gregg's character, who plays Arthur Sackler Sr., who is Richard's uncle. He's kind of the progenitor, the, the patriarch of the family, if you will, kind of paved the way for this legacy to be borne out by his, his progeny, his sons and their sons, et cetera, et cetera, nephew ends up being. But uh, how did y'all think Clark Gregg did, by the way? Fantastic. Yeah, I thought he did a really good job. I've only ever seen him play a good guy, and he was very convincing yeah. at being just a total monster yeah he kind of he kind of had that he pulled the thread there throughout the entire series of being kind of the the devil on richard sackler's shoulder and i was talking to william earlier and william didn't realize that (laughs) that arthur sackler was not actually there the whole time excuse me (laughs) you didn't know he was dead they make that very clear at the very beginning William was like, I didn't understand how at the end when he was getting his face beat in and then the next scene he was fine. <laughs> oh, man. So, sorry, William. I had to throw you under the bus a little bit there. So, so, so well, after that comment, now, in your opinion, William, does Jackson have a punchable face? No, no, no. That's on me. That's on me. I'll admit the first episode when I was trying to get into it, it I, I, it was a little slow at the beginning, and so like I was on my phone a little bit, and then after the first episode, I really started paying attention because I was like, oh, this is actually really good. So I probably missed the part where they talk about how he's dead, and then just like didn't think about the fact that he just like suddenly disappears throughout the episodes. Like I just didn't, it just didn't <laughs> register. It was a continuity error every yeah. Uh, every like, time his character is there, they just like randomly forget to have him on screen immediately <laughs> after. These guys are awful. Well, like it just. It just I didn't I didn't even notice it because I didn't think about it. So that's anyway, that's honestly that's very my funny. Bad. Yeah, it's pretty funny. So, so he, he did an amazing was, job playing the role. I liked how they did not spend a lot of time in Edie Flowers monologuing as the narrator of his background, but they spent enough time to show us who he was and kind of how we got from him starting uh, Purdue Pharma and the sackler empire to the events that really mattered that we were talking about and i also was not expecting him to play the devil on richard sackler matthew broderick's character's shoulder through the entire show i assumed that that was going to be like a beginning thing when he was first starting the company i uh, but i liked it i thought it was a good good choice and even though this is one of those areas where it's good that they said this is a dramatization not based on real things because they would have been eaten alive for that if they had not been super clear but it was good i mean because it really did do a good dramatization of that conversation we have with ourselves that everyone has with themselves in their mind all the time and a lot of times the other side of the conversation takes up the role of someone that you knew that was influential to you. And so it made sense for it to be his uncle who started the whole thing. Are you saying you also see and hear disembodied voices and see past 
loved ones that have passed on? No, I don't. I don't hear and see them, but they do punch me in the face a lot. Mm. Well, that must hurt. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all in my head. It doesn't really hurt. I wondered if that whole theme that they they carried out through throughout the whole series with Arthur Sackler being there but not really being there was a commentary on maybe the mental state of Richard Sackler and the why he did some of this as well as maybe suggesting he had some sort of psychosis which again I didn't look up because <laughs> this is not a facts based yeah. episode However, I am still very curious. That is something we should look why, up before next week. That yeah, I too <laughs> why specifically did not look up because I knew I wouldn't be able to stop myself from talking about it if I found out mm-hmm. the answer. <laughs> well, along the same lines of like trying to suggest that maybe something might have been wrong with him. Did you guys also get the whole the vibe that maybe he was a little bit slow in some areas? Like he was kind of like childlike in a sense. And they showed that specifically with the scenes where he would like play with his dog indoors. And I think a lot of that was just kind of supposed to show like he didn't really care about other people. Like he was just going to do what he wanted to do. But also it, it made me feel like maybe they were hinting at he wasn't all there and he just was sort of childlike in a way sometimes. I don't know. Did you, did you guys like feel that at all? Or did you guys take that more of like, he just didn't care. Yeah, I think that I more was leaning toward maybe he was some sort of sociopathic sociopath of some sort. Like he doesn't care what other people think of him, which he kind of the character made very clear throughout yeah. the entire series. I mean, they talked he talked with his family about, you know, blaming the victims of, you know, the people that are addicts, blaming the addicts and the abusers rather than taking responsibility. and he very frequently emphasized how all he cared about was making money and being in power. Yeah. And I think it was more just a commentary on how he was sort of kind of evil. I think okay. uh, I would be interested. This was something I was waiting. I didn't want to ask before we were actually recording because I wanted Jackson's opinion on this, but what did you think about the recurring smoke alarm beeping? Yeah. William and I had a conversation about this already too. We had lunch together today, but William, you go first. So uh, what I was asking Jackson was the, or, and I just kind of wanted to see what his thought process was on this. And, and we decided we'd talk about it tonight too. The way I took the whole smoke alarm scene was more of like a metaphor that there was a problem. And instead of fixing the problem, they were just going to basically break it. So there's a problem. People need relief from pain. And instead of fixing the problem and, quote unquote changing the batteries and figuring out a way to fix it they just let's just destroy it and make it worse and profit on it and that's that's kind of how i took the whole smoke alarm thing because if for you you guys that don't know what we're talking about in the beginning and throughout the series there's a scene where richard sackler's in his house and the smoke alarm is going off and he's like freaking out about it he's trying to hit it with a broom and try to get it down and eventually he breaks it off the ceiling and it breaks on the ground and he's like ah you know it's fixed but it seems to me like that was almost hinting at like, that's what they did. They saw a problem and instead of fixing the problem, they just decided to break it and they were satisfied with that. But in the end, that doesn't fix the problem. Interesting. Well, and actually, even, even then, he didn't ever fix the smoke alarm throughout the whole series. Yeah. The very first thing you hear after the, when the actual dramatization starts 
is the smoke alarm beeping in Richard Sackler's house. And the very last thing you see and hear is the smoke alarm beeping in Richard Sackler's house. Right. And it never gets fixed. Yeah. So I kind of took it in a similar direction or a similar way that it was some sort of metaphor for instead of fixing something, just kind of let it be. And he also kind of did that throughout the deposition and the, the litigation. He sent his other people to do the thing while he just kind of sat around and made the big decisions and did the parties, etc. But also, to me, the smoke alarm beeping and echoing through that giant, gigantic, obviously expensive house was kind of a, a metaphor for how lonely he might have been. He had one of his his helpers in the first episode. He was getting up on a ladder by himself or a chair or a table trying to hit one of the smoke alarms, one of the many, many smoke alarms he had in his mansion because he thought that was the one beeping. They get it off the ceiling. Well, it turns out that's not the one that was beeping at all. And the the servant, the the, the butler or whatever he has helping him with the house, who never shows up again in the series, by the way, says, you know, I'll get it. I'll find it. Blah, blah, blah. Well, they never find it. And then we have many, many shots throughout of Richard Sackler sitting alone in his house, sitting alone in his living room, sitting alone eating popcorn at his dining room table by himself, He's swimming alone in the pool, which had a fireplace by it, by the way. It was, that was a awesome. sweet pool. And all he has is that beeping and that devil on his shoulder in the form of Arthur. And I think, honestly, it might have been a jab at him by the filmmakers of... You have all this money, but you're still alone. Yeah, it, it could have been the the only other thing that I thought of, and this, I mean, this might not be correct. I mean, the, the concept you guys are bringing up after you went through it seems almost more valid than what I'm about to say. But I'll throw it out there in case anybody else thought this as well. Uh, was that maybe it was representing his conscience that he was ignoring the entire time and i say that because i believe the beeping happens throughout the entire timeline of his story so when we first see him he's old and the beeping is happening and that's with the latter thing and the butler servant helper whatever that jackson was talking about but then when we go back in time when Edie flowers takes us back in time throughout different parts it happens randomly and also nobody when there are other people there in his house uh, which would have been his father and his uncle Mortimer and Raymond. They don't hear it. And, but he does, they don't really mention if the servant hears it or not in the, the first scene, as far as I'm aware. But anyway, the fact that it kept happening throughout the whole saga made me think that maybe this was supposed to be a metaphor for the, his conscience that he was ignored. Yeah. It could have been an, a, like a little nagging annoyance that was his conscience. That's a good, a good point saying like, you shouldn't be doing this. Shouldn't be doing this. Shouldn't be yeah. doing this. And Something like that. And that's why then at the end, because again, it's out of order. The end is actually the first scene we see him in the entire show when he's old and he busts the one that he does get. And the beeping did stop then in that moment. It just then shows up in lots of other things. So I was thinking maybe that was post everything. He's He's caught. He's having to deal with the consequences and he finally just totally gets rid of the conscience entirely says, okay, whatever. And just breaks it. Oh yeah. 
I like that. I, the strategy that he came up with, I won't talk about this a lot because this is going to be important next week as well, but the strategy he came up with for how to deal with the bad press that Oxycontin was getting, which was blame the victims. There, I actually wrote it down, his, his quote. Uh, hold on. I thought I did. Yeah, okay. So his quote was to back law enforcement and hammer the abusers. And the line that they were going to use was, uh, the abusers aren't victims, they are victimizers. And the, the total twisting of perspective that is what he did, both in this fictional dramatization and then also reflecting on my life and the people I've talked with and growing up during this whole time period, that was, by the time I was old enough to understand, that was the default thought process for a long time until probably pretty recently, which was that this isn't the drug company's fault or anyone's fault, except for the person who is the abuser, the drug abuser, and that they are not a victim. They are making victims out of their whole family. And holy cow, and I haven't researched this yet, but if that really came just from him, this wasn't like a team PR effort at Purdue Pharma when all this happened. Talk about one person changing the way that society views something in such a significant way. I mean, that, that, that kind of mind blowing. It was genius and it totally worked, but it was horrible. I mean, one of the worst things about this, probably the worst thing about this, because a lot of the other problems could have been dealt with a lot sooner had not society bought into the idea that these the people who were dying from this were the problem, not the not the victims. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll probably get into a lot of that next week as well. But that was a pretty crazy change in, in the whole dynamic of things. Yeah. A horrible narrative to be pushing. Yeah. I I do hope that he is not the origin of that. I hope that was dramatized. I don't know. Would it would it be better for it to come to from one person rather than a team of people or like a team of people at this one cleaner. company? I don't. I don't think better. It would be cleaner either yeah. way, but it would be a lot neater for me to be able to just direct all of my frustration and hatred at one person as opposed to this amorphous <laughs> yeah. blob of PR mess that True. is probably likely. So we'll see. That, that that needs to be something we come back to next week when we have more. Uh, solid information so william i think you should talk about the farmer girls and shannon schaefer <laughs> since that was your favorite character yeah um so i used to be a salesperson for a company that had just thousands of sales reps that they would send all over the country and want people to buy what they're selling so i used to work for a, a security a home security company and that's basically what they did is they and i'm sure if you know anything about door-to-door sales, you know exactly what company I'm talking about. They send you out and you knock on doors and you get whoever you can to buy what you want. And there's a lot of sneaky sales tactics that they use. And there's a lot of deceit that kind of goes into it. Um, because the goal is just to sell, 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 sell as much as you possibly can. And there's a lot of incentives to sell. And there's a lot of incentives to sell in any way that you can possibly sell. And that William, includes... William goes up to the house and be like, throws a brick through the window. Hey, I see you had a broken window there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know what? <laughs> Basically. Prevent that. Some security. Well, even, even in terms of like, if you notice that this person has family, you know, 
maybe emotionally manipulate them into thinking that they need to have a security system. Talk about statistics of how many families, you know, lose loved ones from robberies or like attempted, like, you know, like that kind of stuff, just kind of sleazy snails, sales tactics to get people to get what you want. And this is what we saw with these saleswomen. It's like they find the attractive women that they want to go in and basically seduce these doctors into giving people these drugs. And what they showed in the in the show was like, we want to incentivize these doctors not only to buy these drugs, to, to give them to their patients, or to, well, not to buy them, but to prescribe them, but to prescribe them higher doses. And so this is what they kind of emphasized throughout this whole thing was like, they're telling these girls to go out and get these doctors to prescribe high doses, but they're also telling them to basically lie about the drug itself and make these doctors think that it's safe and encourage them to, you know, give it out more because it's, you know, they kept saying it's less than 1% get addicted to it or less than 1% have these problems, even when they're met with like, that's not actually true. And so they give them these false information tactics to like push out to these doctors to convince them. And it, it really shows how crazy it was. And they would, you know, they incentivize them with a bunch of sales bonuses and being part of this team and having their own team. And they made it seem like it was just like this fun club to be a part of. And it's the same thing as every pyramid scheme. I mean, it's it was just another pyramid scheme. And it's the same thing that all these women get involved in. And it is primarily women that get involved in pyramid schemes. It's a lot of married women that are housewives that want a job. And so it's enticing and there's a huge there's a huge portion of the population that gets like sucked into these things and it's like be your own boss sort of thing like you work for me and then you can have your own team one day and then they'll all work for you and it it, it just it and it encourages people and in this case it was encouraging people to to promote death essentially and it, it was just crazy like they under, would throw under these the parties under the mask of helping people yes with their pain and taking their yes. pain away and helping them that's the yes. worst part exactly and it, it the the main character the shannon Schaefer, she slowly starts to understand what's going on and she starts to get more uncomfortable with the situation and she did in the very beginning as well so the way that her story arc goes is she becomes the salesperson because she gets recruited because she doesn't have any money and she's looking to help her family out. So she gets recruited by an old friend of hers because she's like, Oh, you can make all this money. You can come live in my fancy apartment with me. And so she's like, absolutely. Like any way that I can make this money, I I'll do that. And she immediately is kind of turned off to the idea because her first, her first like solo sales pitch is to this home doctor, this doctor that works out of his home. And she's, going up to him and saying, hey, you know, you should prescribe this to your patients. It's really going to help and change their lives. And he comes out and he like gets upset and kind of rude with her and says, look, you are pushing heroin. You are you have no idea what you're doing. You don't know the science behind this drug. I would never prescribe my patients this unless they were dying or they have cancer or they're dying with cancer. Like you don't know what you're doing. You're just some dumb like pretty sales girl that they're pushing out to, you know, push their agenda or push their product and and bump their sales and and just kind of ripped into her. And it kind of turned her off to it at first. And and there were a few more instances like that where she, like things happened and she was like, wait, like this doesn't seem right. But then she started making the money. And when she started making the money, she started not to care. 
And then, you know, eventually we see the other storylines up. I don't, I don't know, not exactly, care, but she was up willing to not look real closely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then, and then as the story goes on, she starts to see more and more stuff and it kind of takes those blinders off to the point where she's like, oh, okay, I can't keep doing this. And there's, there's a scene where she sees her own coworkers starting to abuse the drugs that she's been pushing to help people. And she sees, you know, some of the patients that she has seen in doctor's offices start to abuse them in ways. And it's a very interesting story arc because like she starts off kind of opposed to it and then she isn't opposed to it. And then the more and more she sees is she's just overwhelmed with evidence that this is not a good thing to the point where she tries to help the prosecutor, um, Edie flowers, like take them down however she can. And so I, I, while I did not enjoy her character, I thought the storyline was good and it was a very interesting plot to follow. Yeah. That was a really good synopsis of it. Yeah, it was. I thank you. I'll say that was probably my only part that I didn't love ED flowers was that she was so cold and unforgiving with Shannon Schaefer when she turned and started to help. And I understand why. But if there is no forgiveness at the other side, why would anyone ever turn? And so it would, especially because she was yep. trying to get the the assistant to Howard Udell turn just you know right before that, and it fell through, and she was willing to look past her involvement. But then this character Shannon Schaefer that she had actually physically interacted with before who was not willing to listen at those times. The fact that she was un- unwilling to see the guilt and transformation for what it was it bugged me a little bit. It, it was, I don't think it was a wrong choice. I just was like, Oh man, you've got, you're not going to get people to turn around if you can't accept them when they choose to turn around. Yeah, I agree. That was an interesting story choice. And I thought at first that it was, and I think it was in some ways, a tactic for her character to, you know, put up a wall because she wasn't sure that that she was actually going to turn and do the right thing. But then even afterwards, when she did turn and do the right thing, she still was very cold to her. And I agree, it was a little of a, a little bit of a weird choice in the writing. But at the same time, she kind of re- that character represented everything that Edie Flowers character hated about the entire industry. And, and yeah, I, I, I get it. Yeah. And, and by that point in the story, Edie flowers is so jaded on this yeah. subject specifically. And I mean, you see that when you first get introduced to her for her deposition before she starts narrating the whole story that she has been so hardened and made so cold by this experience. So I, I do, I, I get it. I, I, it probably, makes sense for her character just it was not the choice i would have made and since this is a review of the narrative choices i thought i would bring it up (laughs) (laughs) good point the last real story that we had was story of glenn krieger and his family played by taylor kitsch this was a rough one this is probably the most dramatic of all of the storylines for sure you see at the very beginning this is his story he his stepson is operating uh, large equipment. He works for a, a garage, like a car garage, fixing trucks and cars. And there's an accident where he falls off of this large equipment and hurts his back really badly. And the doctor prescribes him OxyContin because, and, and nobody at this point had heard of this drug. It was just at the beginning of 
this company, Purdue Pharma, pushing this on doctors to push it on patients because it was the least addictive. It was very effective for relieving pain, et cetera. And, and, and it also, in defense of the doctor there, this was a legitimate situation where you would prescribe an opioid to someone. Like even yeah, if you take Oxycontin yes. completely out and other opioid would have been prescribed there, it made sense. Yeah, and the doctor was told this is the best there is right. and it's less addictive. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so we, we, that's the beginning of his story, but he slowly, but surely descends into darkness and down a, down a rabbit hole of addiction. And, and it, it was well, very it, hard it also, to watch. It humanizes it in a way too, because yeah. there was a lot of people that say like, Oh, you know, you're only going to get addicted to it. If you're a drug addict, like you're only mm. going to have a problem if you are already at a drug addict. Yeah. And that's just simply not the case. And that wasn't the case with a lot of people. And so it humanizes how this happens. And it starts with the small things like he, you know, he needed a higher dosage because it, it stopped working. And that was kind of how the drug was designed was to slowly up your dosage. That was because one part the of drug the was, lie that Purdue Pharma yes. pushed. There were multiple parts, but that was one of them was this 12 hour release yeah. thing. And their data even had shown that it really only lasted eight, which meant yes. They and so wanted it, more. It, you wanted to get a higher dosage, and that was a way for them to get more money because they charged by the dosage, not by the pill. And even the higher dosages, you were supposed to take it every 12 hours, and eventually your body didn't, you know, accept it for 12 hours. It, you know, it, it went through your system at eight hours, like David said. And so you would want to take it before the 12 hour mark was up. And the more you built up a tolerance to it, the quicker you had to take them. And and so it showed him going through this. In, in such a understanding way, like this man had just had extensive back surgery and, you know, he's got an hour left before he can take his next one, but he's in excruciating pain and can't do his job. Yeah. And at first he's like, yeah, I'll try. Like, I'll, I'll wait till the 12 hour mark. And then eventually it's like he gets so tired of of being in such large amounts of pain that he's like, I'm just going to go ahead and take another one. Like, I'm sure it's going to be fine. They put and he even says, like, I'm sure they put like a, a window in there, too, where you can take it before because they have to. And, and and that was one thing that I really appreciated about it was it showed how it wasn't just drug addicts that people like that were victimized by this. It was regular family, like people that were, you know, they had regular family lives like yeah. they, they were they had regular lives. The every man. He is yes. the down to earth, salt of the earth, hardworking, blue collar, relatable person in the story. Yep. And they did a very good job with his character of sh showing directly how Richard Sackler's plan uh, that I was talking about earlier about blaming the victims was so inaccurate. I mean, that it, it worked, but this was the kind of person that he's blaming, that he's a victimizer, not a victim. And yes, I mean, you, there is personal responsibility involved in all of this. Glenn Krieger's character can't completely be absolved. However, I mean, before this started, he was, he was a small business owner. He and his wife were running this tire and car repair shop. He has a little daughter. He seems to have a good relationship with his stepson, who's a teenager. And that's really difficult to set up i mean just everything was like this guy is a really good well-meaning guy and then we get to watch him be just completely destroyed by his experience with this this drug and then ultimately i mean destroying 
the, the whole family because of what it does to him. Yeah, it was very well presented the entire time I was rooting for him. And up until almost the very end, I thought, okay, he's going to, he's going to get out of this. We're, we're going to get to the end and he's going to be able to break away. Cause there was, there was a time where it really looked like that was going to happen and yeah. just didn't. And uh, th- I mean, this is the story that most directly connected to all of those uh, testimonials at the beginning of the episodes of parents and, family members and loved ones saying, yeah, this is dramatized. However, what is not dramatized is my son, my daughter, their experience. And this was most directly connected to that. And it was, it was heartbreaking. One of my favorite parts of the Glenn Krieger story is what I would call the climax of, of the show. And it was during his detox. And at the same time that this detox is happening, he, you know, he's trying to do right by his family. He knows he can't go home. His wife is shut him out of the house because he's he's addicted to these pills. And then we see him make the decision, hey, I'm going to get clean. He goes to his garage. He sleeps on this dirty mattress in this filthy garage. And he's like doubled over over this toilet detoxing. You know, I don't know what like a regular detox looks like as far as timeline goes. But, you know, for story purposes, and since this is a TV show, it might have lasted a couple of nights, maybe a night or whatever. However, the way that they cut this together, at the same time, the Pharma Girl story with Shannon Schaefer being at that huge OxyContin Purdue Pharma party that Richard Sackler has put on for all of his top salespeople. And they've got people dancing on the stage. They have these people dressed as OxyContin pills, singing and dancing on the stage. And at the beginning of his detox, we see Shannon Schaefer finally give in and try oxycontin for the first time and she does it like in the bathroom she like takes a line of it because people are crushing it up at this point people that don't need it that are not in pain that are actually using drugs just for recreational purposes and the juxtaposition between this beginning stages of her trying this and getting her first high and starting the downward descent compared to glenn's detox in the garage on this dirty floor, you have this glamour and glitz of this drug. And then you have the lowest of the low where it can take you. And I thought visually and narratively, that was very, very strong. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree. Yeah, just the contrast and like what's happening on the corporate side versus what's actually happening in the world is is a very good visual. Yeah, celebrating it over here mm-hmm. and all the money that it's making these people. And then you see the actual victims that they've created from making this drug and distributing it how they have so irresponsibly. Yeah, it was very powerful. And and the other thing about that scene that I liked and also hated at the time that I was watching it was how long and drawn out it is. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, I don't know if you guys noticed, mm-hmm. but I think intentionally it is just so long to make you feel so uncomfortable. And I just yeah. got like more and more stressed the more that I watched them cut back and forth between him writhing on the ground on this dirty mattress and her acid trip of a <laughs> of a scene where it's everything's colorful and she's so high and loving loving it and all this stuff yeah it was painfully long and i'm assuming intentionally yeah i i it was that, that was something i noticed as well was that both of those seemed to drag on but i didn't mind it because it seemed appropriate 
I mean that it was yeah. do it was doing a good job of showing the dichotomy of both of those events happening and how awful both events were. But you know, one with impending dread of the future and one with hope of the future, which is ironic that then their their two character stories both resolve in the opposite of that scene where it leads you. I mean that Shannon Schaefer gets out and helps and tries to fix stuff. And ultimately Glenn Krieger does not. I mean he he in that scene yeah. does have hope in, in the detox process and ultimately gets pulled back in and then dies. So <laughs> David it was weird. <laughs> You just Spoilers. gave it away. Yeah. Okay. Spoiler. If you're over an hour into Spoiler. our review of this and you haven't watched it yet, what are you doing? I was very upset when he died. Yes. I was too. Even though I saw it coming, it it was very upsetting. Because, uh, yeah, you, you really are pulling for him, his character, and really hoping Especially that, the connection he makes with his stepson after uh, the no. detox. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they become so close. Even when he's still struggling to rebuild his relationship with his wife, he and his stepson are like, I, I mean, they're, they're attached and are so committed to each other and they're laughing and I'm like, okay, this is amazing. We, we came out the other side. This is great because I mean, I, you felt horrible for the stepson because he was the impetus to the injury, right? That started mm-hmm. all of this. And then there is a point where the mother actually blames him, not justly. It was not his fault that his stepfather got addicted, but I mean, for a teenager, having that on their, on their mind would be so destructive and yeah. yeah, So seeing them bond and move past that and forgiving each other and that was great. And so seeing him die at the end, that was, that was sad. I, I, the other part I liked about that story between, uh, stepson and father was the friend's house that the stepson went over to the oh, dad yeah. that apparently we don't, they don't go into this at all, but for whatever reason, mom doesn't like that he goes over there. So they, they must pre all of this drug addiction have thought that this household was a bad influence. And in spite of that, this household, the, the father of this household is the one who protects the stepson from the idiot stepfather who is literally high when he's coming over to, I don't even remember what he was doing. I, he was supposed to bring him home because they didn't want him there, whatever. That was touching in a moment. It was like, wow, okay, this guy, this guy's a good dude. He, he, he got a bad rap. <laughs> he's actually looking out for this kid that's not even his own. Yeah, I'm really the last thing to talk about is the the trial scene. I mean, everything led up to this, this very last scene of the, the, the courtroom where they've been working so hard. They've getting, been getting these statements from both victims and Shannon Schaefer and people who worked at Purdue Pharma. And, and the judge announces the quote unquote sentencing or the, the settlement, the settlement of the, of the whole case. And it's just, a devastating blow to both the the people that have worked so hard in the show, uh, the characters that have worked so hard in prosecuting these people, as well as like to the audience because they kind of get away with this. Not kind. They of. pay very. <laughs> yeah, I mean they 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 got away pretty much scotch scot free. So they they pay a little bit of money. They have to relabel the bottles, and the two. 
people that work for the three Purdue. There were three people. Oh, three, but not Richard Sackler. No, it was the three Get individuals mis- who were at the congressional hearing and therefore lied under oath. They all that's right. Basically, yeah. got a slap on the wrist, a misdemeanor for. They got that. a misdemeanor. Yeah, but not any of the Sacklers who ran the company. So they they have these fall fall guys essentially that still didn't really even become fall guys since they only got misdemeanors. And the company continued to create this product with very little change to the way that it's distributed or packaged. Yeah. And that's really the resolution of this story. Or the, now we have yeah, the a, first resolution because luckily yes. 10 years later, we somehow are able to bring this back again, which is good. Yeah. yeah. And, and we'll get and back we'll to this that next week. Yeah. <laughs> We there's like a, a final kind of title sequence at the end updating us, uh, the viewer, on what has been going on with Purdue Pharma and the case that is still ongoing, uh, which we will talk about next week and you'll have to tune into. I will yeah. say before we move on and wrap up the episode, the other theme that I really liked throughout this was the corruptibility of humankind. And how, I mean, we follow all these different characters and I mean, Glenn Krieger's character, I don't feel like he's not corrupted. He corrupted. He becomes addicted. I think there's a difference. Shannon Schaefer fights against corruption, becomes corrupted and then comes back. The Sackler family from the beginning chose corruption and never looked back. Uh, the only times that certain members of the family even doubted that choice wasn't because they didn't want to be corrupt anymore, but because they wanted to make the problem go away. Uh, Edie Flowers, who is steadfast in the face of corruption and never at any point gives into it, but does lose all hope for humanity throughout the process. Uh, and then characters like the other character who is real. Dr. Curtis Wright that worked for the FDA that start also started out as a staunch truth seeker who was really trying to do his job and was shown corruption by the Sacklers. And over the course of time, he did give in and then was handsomely rewarded for giving in in multiple ways. Some ways we don't even know really what happened. We just know that he gave in. And then stuff changed. <laughs> and so that'll, that'll be something yeah. I know I'm going to talk about a lot next week. But watching the, all of these different characters and their interaction with corruption was very interesting and very well presented. Yeah. We've got a lot to talk about next week, too. Yeah. Nah. And I think lot. because of the nature of this story, we don't do the whole fun rating system. We can still rate how we, how we enjoyed the show. Uh, yep. But I think because of the subject matter, we make it a Probably, little bit yeah. more serious, but we still do want to applaud the people who created this show because they did a great job at kind of bringing to light in an entertainment way so that people will start asking questions and maybe doing their own research on what's actually going on with the pharmaceutical industry and the opioid crisis. And I think that's commendable. So I do think we should still give the show a rating. Yeah, I would give it I would give it a seven and a half. Out of yeah, ten. Seven out of seven and a half. Okay. David? I mean, just a rating for how well done it was, yeah. how entertaining it was with the combination of truth. I mean, I think I would say for me it was a nine out of ten. Yeah. Yeah. The production quality for me was was very good. The storytelling was very good. I loved the contrast 
like I talked about earlier with the Glenn story and the Shannon Schaefer story, just so well done. And all the acting was, was really great. So I would also, I'm probably going to give it like a eight and a half. Very, very well produced show. And uh, again, I already said this, but the fact that shows like this are being made in such a way that they're not just for entertainment and it's very clear by the production is very cool to me. Yeah, that's the thing I respect absolutely the most about this is how clear they were about the mixture of truth and fiction and the gravity that it still holds, even though it's not a, a direct biography of these characters. Uh, also, yeah. one of my, one of the reasons I'm rating it so highly is because of the, the performances by all of the actors were pretty much flawless. I didn't have any problems with the way anyone acted and i did not see matthew broderick is the only big name person on this that i was aware of and he's basically a comedy actor at least in everything i've ever seen he was not matthew broderick i mean what you think of the goofy matthew broderick in this at all he was terrifying he did a very good yeah. job of not being himself in any way shape or form i agree pretty good overall ratings but you'll have to tune in next week to hear the real story of the sacklers and purdue pharma that's what we're covering, and we're going to go into much more detail on the facts of the ongoing case, what happened then, and what's still happening uh, recently. So, hope to see you guys there. Hope you guys listen. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us, info at amateurhourpod.com. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at amateur underscore pod. And if you like what you hear us doing every week so much that you want to help us keep the lights on here at Amateur Hour, you can do that over at Amateur or Excuse me. You can do that over at patreon.com slash amateur hour pot. Thanks for listening, guys. Tune in next week for part two.